Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin from Chicago, Michigan Law, and I'm joined, as always, today by my co-host, uh, Rob Hunt, who, after uh, being traveling the last two weeks, has finally found himself in a location where he can join in and join us. Uh, Rob, how are you doing today? Oh, great. It's great to be back, Larry. Uh, hopefully you haven't been able to uh, miss me too much for the last couple of weeks, but I'm excited to be back on the show this week. Well, we are excited to have you, and what a great day to come back. Uh, for those of you who are joining us today and listening, stop and call your friends and tell them to join too, uh, because we have on our show today a guy uh, who really kind of hits a home run for us. He's huge in the music scene. He's huge in the cannabis scene. And uh, his name is Terry Haggerty. He is an original member of the band, The Sons of Champlin, uh, from back in the day. And we're going to get to him in one second, but let's set the mood. And Dan, if you could spin for us our first uh, song clip of the day, that would be great. Yes, that is the song Freedom. That is a Sons of Champlin song from their album Loosen Up Naturally. Uh, and as I was, I've, I've known the song for a long time, but I was reading on it and everybody said, oh, for God's sakes, be sure to listen to the guitar solo. So we decided that was a good place to start. And we actually have the guy who played the guitar solo with us today, Terry Haggerty. Terry, thank you so much for joining the Deadhead Cannabis Show. It's great to have you here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Really, thank you for having me. Well, anytime we can connect with somebody who helped, you know, create the sounds that we all grew up to, uh, it, it's a real win for us. And uh, as our listeners are going to find out in a few minutes here, uh, you're more than just about the great music you guys laid out for us uh, way back in the day um, and continue to do so, as we'll also talk about. But you're helping out the other side of our show, too, uh, uh, with all the contributions that you're making in the world of cannabis. And uh, I think that that's part uh, almost even more exciting than the music. Some people might argue with that, but we'll, you know, we'll get to that music soon enough. But let's, let's talk for a few minutes about uh, what you're doing with Hagalicious, what's it all about, how you got it started, and, and where's it going? Well, you know, I can play right into what you just said because – when I was first turned on to cannabis, what, what was about 1965. And our manager at the time was Frank Werber, who managed King's Trio, the Wii Five, and uh, he had a whole bunch of other bands that never became famous, like us. But he had the most amazing herb in the world. And so that was so early in my pot smoking uh, life 
And uh, having smoked such excellent, almost unobtainable herb so early on, it really kind of set my sights on and, and the realization that there was hardly any really good herb. Like really excellent herb. Once you smoked it, you realize how rare it was. I've always said a tenth of one percent of all marijuana was that level of marijuana. And it always got absorbed in, you know, rich people always got it. So, you know, those of us that were broke hardly ever had an opportunity to smoke marijuana like that. But it had set up a real distinction for me about what I was looking for. And I've always had a background in botany and plants. And so when I saw marijuana seeds, they were as interesting to me as the pot itself. And so right from the beginning, from about 1969, I started saving seeds and keeping them in deep freeze. So a lot of genetics that uh, Hagalicious is about all is generated by, uh, you know, by that distinction and those uh, land race, you know, kind of heirloom varieties. Well, and those are, like you say, I mean, you know, some of the most well-known and and um, uh, well well smoked in terms of quantities than any out there. At what point for you did it cross the line from, you know, I'm I'm growing here for myself and to make sure that I always have what I want into, wow, uh, I can really kind of turn this into a business. Don't think it ever was exclusively I'm growing it for myself. Okay. Okay. So there, there was always, a, but, but back in 1965, it wasn't as easy as it is today. No, it was. It was very, very hard. And I would say until the late 60s or early 70s, everything was very, very small. But, you know, it really generated a lot of... Uh, not income because there wasn't that much, but it was worth, you know, quite a bit. So in a lot of ways, because my music career was really on full tilt at that point, it ended up being a really great medium of barter for, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I've always, you know, I've always made sure that everybody on every gig, sound guys, roadies, everybody make sure they get a nice bag. And I've done that forever. Well, lots of times I think people would hire me just to get some good pot, whether they like the music or not. You know? Well, you understand why we asked you to be on the show today, right, Terry? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was my bad humor, but, you know, we're, we're always happy to it. But but that's really exciting. And um, did you find that others in the music profession were, you know, as interested in following along with this as you were, other than just enjoying it for the you know, mental benefits they would get from it? Not the people that I knew. And I think I knew pretty much everybody in all the uh, landmarks San Francisco bands. No, it was, you know, there were so many just like, you know, amazing outlaw smugglers back then, you know, just, I mean, Goldfinger always comes to mind because he's such part of the lexicon of everything. But there was a handful of them. And then there was all the people that I knew that turned me on to the Goldfingers and Bob Blacks and, you know, the whole inter Oli and just the whole international world of smugglers. So, so I I always had access to some pretty amazing herb because those were the level of people that I interacted with. And as I get further and further into having a seed catalog, I always had a standing thing with everybody that I'll pay more than anybody else for your really best herb. 
you know, I was going to LA and doing sessions and playing on a bunch of stuff. So I knew so many people that would, you know, just about pay anything, you know, most of them just really big record company owners and, you know, pretty amazing high up there people. And they would pay anything for the good for, you know, a number of reasons. Number one, because it's great to uh, be the guy with the kind. And number two, because, you know, it was so hard to get that you just had to kind of aggressively pursue it. So, so back since, you know, and then I got really involved with wine and, and I helped a whole bunch of growers start and supplied them with a bunch of genetics and, uh, and there's a common root of really great genetics that comes from the 60s into the you know 70s and the 80s. And for me, it started with a brotherhood of eternal light because they liked us and we played gigs with spirit, and, you know, took acid with them and hung out. And they'd bring in these amazing loads of hash and we're making their sunshine acid. But they brought back a pound of Mazari Sharif uh, uh, seeds, and they were the most exquisite, incredible seeds. So I managed to get a handful of those seeds that I crossed with a 1969 Colombian Chiba weed. Another variety is a 1972 really high altitude Michoacan that's almost white when you look at it. It's got it's so so much crystal on it. And then a 1974 Michoacan that everybody called Ice Bag at the time that I got from Goldfinger. And between those three varieties, they're kind of like the core progenitors of almost everything I do now. And seeing I've been doing it for 50 years, like all these things have really, you know, developed through breeding, into, you know, a number of different things, you know, probably 36 varieties that I can really you know, distinguishes being really not variants of something else, but really unique things. And, uh, you know, I've got like a lot of the most amazing seeds you've only heard of. And because uh, I've kept them in deep freeze for so long, I don't know if they'll start, but I know with maybe a little gibrillic acid, just like a little sterile coaxing that they will crack open because... I started some 1974 Mazari seeds that were crossed with these Michoacans uh, last year. And out of 30 seeds, I got three to sprout. And out of those, I got a male and a female. So then I crossed those up. But I also am growing the, that variety of females. So, you know, seeds run out of gas, but it lasts a long time if, if you initially kept them in a pretty deep freeze. Yeah, it's very exciting that um, when you were first getting these original uh, strains, uh, was that when the Brotherhood was still down on Laguna Beach? Were you part of that whole Laguna Canyon scene as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, completely. And, you know, Tim Leary was out there in the one house out in Laguna Niguel. There was nothing out there. Just that one house. And, you know, everybody go out there. And the standard thing for the Brotherhood, the way I remember it is, you take like a giant handful of sunshine, you know, like 30 of them. And, you know, then everybody would hang out and play music. And when somebody would just go out and leave their body, then everybody would run over and just do this energy thing with them. I mean, people were really way, way into it. And they had so much money. And, <laughs> and the mayor of Laguna Beach was one of them. I mean, it was really quite the knucklehead scene, you know, in a nice way. 
Yeah. I mean, from everything I've read, that was, you know, essentially Bear was running the Bay Area and the Brotherhood was running Southern California as far as, like, when I say running, just the dissemination of massive, massive amounts of LSD at the time uh, and just turning on as many people as they could um, in both parts of the coast. Yeah, no, Bear is great. He's been a friend for a long, long time. And way back then, I remember him coming to the Avalon Ballroom when we were playing there and he did this for all the bands. He'd make these little leather pouches and then he put a bunch of hits LSD in there. And, and in this particular time, there was like about 50 white lightnings in one bag and 50 purple hazes in another. And he was just making sure everybody got them. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, Bears always, was always a great artist. And as much as he was a, a sound engineer and a, a chemist, um, you know, his metal work and his leather work, um, so many cool things that he used to put out. Yeah, no, he really interesting. As I think a Starfinder said, you know, uh, my dad isn't the kind of guy that can modulate his behavior. He just does what he does. <laughs> but, you know, I really loved him. I tried to help him grow it in Australia. And uh, I gave him a whole bunch of seeds, and I told him which ones I thought would do good. But, you know, he decided that those weren't the seeds he wanted to grow, and he grew some other ones, and they were okay. But, he, you know, he didn't grow the ones, but... That was kind of going the process through the process with him, and uh, when the when the dead fired him, eventually to be a sound guy, and then they were getting back together again. That first configuration, uh, our friend Wizard, who uh, worked for the Suns for a long time and was working on the Harry Potter movies in England, and the dead hired him to do the sound for their tour. And so Bear calls me up, and he says. They don't want me back, but I should be back. <laughs> and I said, well, I, I agree with you, Bear. I think you've got some wild ideas. And so I hooked him up with Wizard. Wizard was totally excited to have Bear on the crew. And my God, did I receive grief for that. You know, it's just like that. That was never good. Enough. Always good to be on Bear's good side, huh? Yeah. Uh, you're, you're always on my good side. I just won't pick up after a point. You know? Wow. Um well, let's. Uh, we've we've got another music clip for you here, Terry, and so we're just going to keep throwing them out here for a few minutes. Normally, this would all be dead clips, but as long as we have you on the show today, by God, we're gonna we're gonna feature a little Suns music. And uh, Dan, why don't you go ahead and, and spin that second clip for us?
the specific reason why we picked this big boss man clip is because you're right. It's from Winterland and, you know, on uh, YouTube, it just says 71 or 72. But in the notes, they talk about uh, Garcia playing. And what I was really looking for was the uh, Yogi Flem show from March of 75 when you guys were late to the show. And so Jerry and Phil came out and played with um, uh, played with the other guys until you got there because Graham was forcing them to go on or he was going to cancel the contract or something. Yeah, no, he Bill could be that that way. And, you know, we had a few gigs that we played for Bill where he came up to us at the end of the set. He said, I'm paying you twice as much. We're going, oh, God, you're kidding. He says, you played so good, you deserve twice as much. So he was really pretty fabulous that way. He had this solar plex energy that could make you shake just looking at you. But if he wasn't doing that to you, then he was pretty great. And both of his long-term secretaries, Annie Hatch and then Rita Gentry, were both the son's secretaries before they went over to... Uh, to uh, Bill's and one one of Annie's jobs because she was between uh, uh, Green, what's her first name? Oh, um, Honey. Between Honey Green, so she was her and then Honey and then Rita, and uh, she would always tell us. She says, "Well, one of the big gigs is like Bill keeps every penny, and he's got this big giant bathtub, and it's just at the end of the week, it's filled with coins." That's part of my gig is I've got to roll all these coins up and oh take them to the God. band and deposit because, <laughs> you know, it was early filled. I, I mean, Bill Graham's stories are great. Um, give us a little bit of background on the Sons of Champlin, how they came to be and what they were all about. Let's see. The Sons were, uh, were uh, preceded by a band called The Opposite Six. And the opposite six had a record company on dot, really an excellent band, uh, you know, dance steps, full uniforms, really great arrangements. And uh, when that guitar player, Don Irving, left the band to go and play with the Bo Brummers, they hired me to play in the band. And then that band turned into the very early sons, the five-piece sons, that we did loosen up with. And, you know, it was all Marin County. We'd all been playing together since before we could drive cars. Our moms would drive us around to each other's house so we could play. And, uh, yeah, no, we signed with Capitol, did a couple albums with Capitol. I forget what the order is, but, you know, a number of different record companies. And, uh, you know, that's that was our real psychedelic era. That was the era where I was, you know, taking acid, geez, like 15 out of 30 days, you know, you know every, you know. <laughs> Forever, we'd, we'd all take acid on the jets flying back and forth. And, you know, we just figured we were going to go for it and see what that was like, you know. And so the, all the music that came out of that era was just so completely LSD driven. And then our manager at the time, Fred Roth, was friends with Gary Snyder. And he did these shows called Mandala Mandalographies where Gary uh, would read his poetry and Fred would show slides. He'd have a whole bunch of those different slideshow things and they'd morph and stuff like that. So Gary Snyder was a big influence on us. He did what did, wasn't really into hanging with a band that much, but because he was in such close proximity, the whole philosophy and our us being so young and Turtle Island, it's just, you know, 
really just kind of rubbed off. And then the person we got to actually spend time with was Alan Watts, because we all had this guru guy, Albert Saijo, that everybody looked up to. And uh, we'd go there as a band and have dinner, and Alan would be there, and we'd listen to him talk philosophy for, you know, hours on end. And after doing that, we'd come back and we'd write these sons tunes, you know, because it was just so compelling and it's much better than living at home with your parents. you know. Absolutely. So this is what I wanted to ask you about that, though, Terry. You're talking about a time, I guess, what, like in the mid-1960s? The, yeah, well, the mid-60s with Frank Werber and then late 60s with the uh, first Capitol albums and... Uh, we broke up the first time in 1977, so we'd morphed from a full-on hippie band to a band trying to do write a hit record into, you know, one of those, we all had nudie suits and that whole phase, and, uh, you know, we went back and forth from no horns to lots of horns, and uh, I think one of the highlights of the later later 70s phase was having Mark Isham in the band because you know, that was really musically just, you know, quite influence, you know, quite an influence on things. And, uh, well, I I'd love to hear a little bit about Bill because it seems to me that, you know, what you're describing was him moving towards a sound that was ultimately played by Chicago, which is the band he joined. Correct. Uh, he joined Chicago. I don't know. That's what it is because, when we were playing, I think it was uh, Fillmore West before there was Winterland. And when Bill had moved from Fillmore to Fillmore West there on Market Street, Jim Gersio came to hear us. And there was no such thing as Chicago. And he got us all together. And, and, and you know, Jim Gersio was Chicago's manager. And so what he said to us, he says, Horn, you know, I've never heard a rock and roll band with horns like this. He says, I want to manage you. I want to uh, get you record deals. I want you to come with me. We were just so idealistic and we really didn't understand anything about business per se. And we told him, no, we like our manager. So literally within six months of that, Jim Garcia went and he put together Chicago. I mean, that whole entire band, Terry Caff, all those people were a product of Jim Garcia putting them together. And he did it as, as he couldn't get the sons. So later when Bill went to Chicago, it was kind of a natural fit because, you know, a lot of the textures and a lot of the, uh, of the roots that influenced all of us were so common, you know. And Bill's great. I mean, Bill really is amazing. You know, we're, we've had our differences, but we're really having quite a bit of fun now. And uh, one thing I can say about Bill, because he's the person I took more LSD with than anybody. <laughs> and once you get to see that part of somebody, you can never see them other than uh, Bodhisattva, you know. And... Uh, and, you know, we're all kind of like little Siddharthas getting lost and waiting for the river to talk to us, kind of. So <laughs> that's my overview of just about every bit of it, actually. Okay. So back in that time, Terry, uh, you know, which rings did you love playing? Was it, you know, the Fillmore or was it the Avalon or was it, you know, like, 
the obviously the the Warfield and the Great American Music Hall. There's just so many great rooms in San Francisco. Uh, which ones were you playing? Which ones were you really stoked when that was where your game was? Oh, the Avalon. Everybody, uh, Avalon. Oh, God bless his soul, Chet. You know. The Avalon, I mean, if you were psychedelic and you wanted to be psychedelic and you wanted to go to a place that was safe to be psychedelic, you went to the Avalon. And, I mean, that was amazing. And that was when Chet Hans and the family dog were running the Avalon? Oh, yeah, yeah, right from the beginning. And, uh, you know, Chet was, you know, in my mind, really a saint. You know, I, I love Chet, you know. He, he gave uh, two people these really beautifully signed pictures right before he died, David Freiburg and me, you know, because he says, well, you guys really were the guys that played for free more than anybody else. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was the son's thing, you know. That's, uh, that's a good group of two to be in, man, you and Freiburg, huh? Oh, yeah. No, I love David. You know, I just saw him the other day, so, you know, he's doing great. He just had his, what, what was it, his 81st birthday, <laughs> David Freiburg? Yeah, I think so. It's eighty first birthday. Yeah. It, does it besides the fact? I mean, you know, I blinked my eyes and I went from twenty to sixty. But you know, you guys are all a few years older than that. Does it surprise you to see how many of your of the you know the guys who started out with you are still on their feet? I just saw Dead and Company a week ago at Wrigley Field. You know, they took about a twenty minute break, but otherwise they were on stage for almost four hours. I saw Phil Lesh last fall. He's 81 or 82, and he's playing for three and a half hours. That That's pretty amazing. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things, the big differences between that what ended up being a dividing thing between Bill and I was I love that about those guys. That's what I wanted to do. Again, when I was working with Steve Kimmock, I mean, my God, we'd play for four or five hours. Everybody would be so stoned. You know, everybody would be there. The family would be there. The kids would be on the blanket. You know, it would just be going and going, and you'd play like hour-long tunes. And it was just the most beautiful essence of consciousness flowing and being one and nobody being special and you know all the things that really mattered to me as far as being psychedelic and uh, the last thing in the world I wanted to do was like be in a band that wrote hit records and stuff like that but when you think about the venues that these different approaches take on you know one is really big show and dance and 90 minutes of torque with a, with a big encore and the other one is a stream of consciousness thing, you know? So, and the stream of consciousness thing, when the suns were there, God, we would just reach heights that we couldn't any other way than getting in that continuum and it building and opening up. And uh, so I miss that. And at some point with the suns, it just philosophically just didn't serve my kind of, I guess, Buddhist nature, you know? I mean, I scribed a little bit of everything, but I like well, thinking that way. So, Let me ask you this question, Terry, because um, what you were just saying, I want to build on a little bit. All these acts that came out of that particular part of the world at that particular time, right? You guys and the dead and the airplane and Quicksilver and Moby Grape and just on and on and on with all of them. And it seemed like the, the, the defining characteristic in all of them was their love of live performance, you know, almost to the exclusion of studio work that they wanted to be out. They wanted to be playing live. They were always playing live and the dead kind of carried that on probably a little bit farther, 
Um, but, but, but what was it about what was going on out there that just, you know, kind of imbued everybody with this love of music, but it was all about, let's just go out and play. We don't need to do the three minute hits that are going to, you know, make us some, you know, quick pocket change and stuff like that. Before you answer that building on that, you know, what was the feeling when, when the airplane did have a hit record or when, you know, um, Janice had a hit record where all of a sudden like things were a little turned upside down that bands that kind of were there for the love of playing now all of a sudden we're, you know, superstars, uh, you know, it seems to be kind of a, a juxtaposition as far as what the, the idea and the mantra was versus what the reality was when all of a sudden the San Francisco scene just became that hot. Well, you know, the thing that most people don't realize is the uh, Jefferson Airplane was like in a category uh, of their own. I think they were just so highly educated, so intelligent, and they really, uh, they could be pretty snarky, you know, and they were different. They were just different than the rest of us, and, but, you know, not, not committed to the cultural, you know, revolution, you know, uh, expanding consciousness thing. They were just really, really smart, and they had a lot more sarcasm and a lot more stuff. Like, you know, Paul Cantor and Grace, Paul was a dear friend. I've known Paul forever. I mean, I just really looked to Paul and his mind and how trippy he could be. But there was always this underlying snarky thing. You know, if you hung with the Grateful Dead and you went to Page Street or something like that, nah, nobody's being – that's just not the way that was, you know, or or Quicksilver or any of the you know, it's, it it was that was unique to to the airplane. But was that true of all of them? Was that Marty and uh, Yorma also, or was it just you know uh, Grace and Jack? Oh, I mean, you know what? I played out there at Yorma's place, and early on, Yorma was you know just my opinion, but Yorma was really you didn't get a lot of energy from Yorma. I guess that's the nicest way I could say it. Is the hottest guitar player in the East Bay at the time, huh? It's, you know, it's all perspective because if you came up through my world, which was like bebop guitar players and organ trios and and just incredible technicians, pretty much most of the... Uh, it took me a while to realize and hear the community and everybody's playing and the connectedness. And, but it surely wasn't about, at least for me, it surely wasn't about any technical prowess on the instrument, but it really did say something about how uh, vapid, you know, technique and intellectual application to your instrument can be without some heart and some connectedness, yeah. So I think the biggest thing about the 60s for all of us, but I should go back about that because, you know, I played out there in Yorma's place. My God, he's the most elegant, loving human. You know, it's just like, it's amazing. And we were just laughing. I was just saying, my God, Yorma, I just, this is, is the most amazing thing. You, you, you know, you just really turned into this, just beautiful, loving human. You know, that's just great. You know? A lot of crazy drugs, though, you know, and uh, people don't want to talk too much about how detrimental drugs were, you know, it's like, 
cocaine, their heroin, you know, all the keyboard players dying, you know. I, because I, my, both my parents were professional musicians, and I was educated and met a lot of amazing musicians that were really fucked up. So the 60s wasn't anything new to me, and when I saw a lot of things, I was so outspoken about them. Like, if you came to a gig, my gig, and you went into the bathroom, and you got a bunch of people in there, you were starting cocaine, I'm locking the door on you, or I'm going in there, and I'm taking the cocaine away, and I'm kicking you out of the gig. That's it. And as people got to know that about me more and more, you know, he, he's not a fun guy to hire. I mean, that's kind of a hassle. <laughs> <laughs> got to keep your standards. But, well, it just seems like that's not what we're doing, is it? Like, that's pretty common these days. A lot of musicians now have, you know, backstages that, uh, you know, are, are relatively sober backstages by comparison to what you used to see. Oh, yeah. The trend seems to be, you know, let's keep the backstage roar to a minimum. And let's keep it relatively clean. Oh, you know, we're like playing this fun thing just a couple of days ago. It was like, I haven't done this in a long time. I can't smoke any pot. My pot's so strong. I just, I just got to really pay attention to, to this because, you know, there's, we didn't realize we were so young and we were in the self-discovery mode and we didn't realize really the responsibility we had each other to kind of keep it together a little bit at least <laughs> but that's what happens when you get older right and no doubt about it try to tell your kids that and see what they say if they're like mine they just laugh at you yeah well mine just told me they says if you raise this like you think you did you don't have the slightest idea what we're doing and we're definitely not telling <laughs> you said earlier, you, know, you mentioned Kimok, and you know Kimok is definitely kind of a younger generation than the guys you were uh, discussing as far as everyone that came up in the San Francisco scene, scene together. But who is it that's playing today that you go, wow, those guys get it? You know, like they're really carrying the on the torch for for kind of the scene that you guys started uh, fifty years ago. But who are you looking at now? Well, you know, these are musicians I just think are exceptionally talented and are really fun to watch them progress. You know, there's a number of young guitar players here in Marin that are the kids of uh, of uh, musicians that are really, really great. And uh, I think the thing that they miss right now is because there isn't that really, uh, there isn't, as inquisitive a uh, musical audience as there was in the 60s and the 70s, you know, you just don't see venues where, you know, uh, Charles Lloyd and uh, Grateful Dead and uh, the Skittle Band all play together and everybody loves each one and listens to them. So, music, you know, younger musicians now are under the pressure to be so much technically better, but they, they try to be cracks of all trades and they, you know, they try to make a living. I don't think any of us ever thought about making a living. And I was, I, I, I my dad was a, a studio player and he worked all the top gigs in San Francisco when I was young. And so before I took acid and joined the Suns, I was playing the musicals and playing his jobs that he couldn't do and was he just had all the beautiful suits and the custom cars and everything was just tricked out and uh, you know it all it took was one hit of acid to just go like well that's a lot of work for something I don't want anymore <laughs>
That's true too. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, your relationship and, and the son's relationship with the Grateful Dead and maybe one or two stories you can give us about that. Well, let me go all the way back to the, the kind of beginning. I guess it was 1968, maybe 69. And uh, our manager comes in, Fred, and because he's so involved with the art community and a lot of people in the hate. And the tourists are really starting to show up more and more. And there's just like a real angst about how the hate is changing. So there was a meeting about it at the hate period. And our manager, who knew Jerry better than I do, did at the time, says, let's go. Let's listen to Jerry talk. And I said, you mean Jerry Garcia? And he says, yeah, no, he's, he's going to talk at this thing. And... That Jerry was so eloquent, so erudite, so unbelievably, uh, he just pulled the essence of what we were doing as beatniks, turning into hippies, being psychedelic people with a vision of the world being better. And he was addressing so much of the Buddhist nature of change. Well, he, I mean, he was an amazing guy to listen to. That. And so that's my first real remembrance of Jerry personally. And then I was playing with him a bunch with Howard Wales and playing there at the Matrix and all those places. So I got to know him pretty good and became pretty good friends. We didn't see each other a lot, but we'd see each other at some really nice times. And I initially met Jerry. I was working for Bill Corey's Teens and Twenties and. I think I was in the band that was backing the Everly Brothers. And there was a Pinky's Pizza across the street. And I went there to get a pizza. And there was this guy missing a finger playing banjo there. And I introduced myself. And he says, yeah, my name's Jerry Garcia. And I never thought about it until a couple of late, years later when I saw, you know, the Morlocks and the Grateful Dead. And said, I know that guy. Yeah. You know, Bay Area is a small thing, especially back then with musicians. <laughs> so when Howard Wales was uh, you were playing with those guys, was that during the Hooterall years or was that a, a separate ensemble? It was, you know, Howard just had everybody playing with him. It was amazing. He had some really great producers produce some of his stuff. He, you know, he put out all of his gorgeous albums, with amazing art on them and music being really good. And uh, I always saw Jerry at those things. And, uh, and then, you know, the dead hired us. To, I mean, or they, we took on management. When Sam Cutler started managing them, then we signed a contract with Sam, and he was our kind of booking agent, like the out-of-town bookers, out-of-town tours. I think that's what they called themselves at the time. So we were managed by that whole group for, I think, three or four years. And that's when we did the Columbia album that Phil got us because we were all so, you know, close together. And, uh, yeah, and then Jerry kind of just became a little bit more distant. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting story because uh, back in, I guess, 67 or 68, a friend of mine sent me eight pounds of opium from uh, – Nepal. And back in those days, it would just show up in the mail. So I got this big box with uh, Can I clarify? Did you say eight pounds of opium in the mail? Eight pounds of opium in the mail, yeah. That's amazing. And, you know, back then, you know, that was what people weren't really paying attention to that in the early days. You know, LSD was legal. Barry Melton told me, he said, oh, my first trip was like, you know, in 
65 when acid was legal. I was going, oh, fuck, that's right, you know? So anyway, I've got this, I open this box up and I look at it and I say, oh, God, hashish, how great. So I get out my pipe and I'm trying to smoke it and the stuff won't burn and it won't burn. That's not hash. And, and all of a sudden I'm starting to get sick to my stomach and get all loose <laughs> and I go, oh, shit, this is opium. So I called Jerry and I said, I've got eight pounds of opium. I'll trade you a pound of opium for a pound of pot. <laughs> and that's what we did. <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, I grew up in a time where, you know, you could still walk through uh, metal detectors in the airport with, you know, cold pounds in your carry-on and not get popped, you know, sort of pre-Unabomber days. And certainly after 9-11, that changed completely. But mailers that we were doing certainly weren't anything like that. And, you know, for the cold pounds of mushrooms in the mail, you were pretty happy when it arrived at the other end. And normally you just write return to sender on the box and stick it out in your back porch. So if anyone did, you know, show up, you go, ah, this wasn't for me. Um, not that I would probably hold any weight in court, but, you know, at the time we thought that was genius of saying, like, oh, we refused delivery. But honestly, you just upped the ante with eight pounds of opium through the mail. No, it's just, just happened, you know, it's just my friend Mitch sent it to me and there it was, you know, and, but no, those days were different. You know, you could just put like, you know, a quarter pound of pot in an oatmeal container and you could tape it up and you could send it away. But we're, we're talking before any of this camp stuff or anything happened. And you know, the thing that's so interesting about the whole drug war is my wife has friends and she's an excellent singer and and really teach teaches vocals to you know a lot of professional people that come through and do the shows like wicked and all these things so you know we get to meet a lot of folks like that and uh god i shouldn't have smoked it i'm just just lost my train of thought <laughs> <laughs> well let me let me do this because you know sometimes i'm not much better at that than you I just went and saw Dead and Company for two nights at Wrigley Field. They probably pulled in about thirty-five to forty thousand people for both nights. Now I attribute that to the fact that there's a lot of deadheads out there like me who like to go to the gathering of the tribe and be part of the whole crowd. And there's Bob Weir up there doing his thing, and how wonderful that is to see. But what always strikes me is while I'm never close to being the oldest guy in the show, I'm far from being the youngest. And what's amazing to me is every year. The crowd gets younger and younger, but it's not just that people are bringing their kids. I mean, these are kids like my kids' age or maybe even younger, but they've got the tie-dye T-shirts. They've got the headbands. They've got the bell-bottoms. They've got. It's as if you picked them right up out of the 60s almost. What is it that's keeping this spirit alive, You know, that's keeping the dead popular and relevant, that's keeping this whole – do you have an answer for that? <laughs> Oh, yeah, sure, sure. I think, I think, you know, nobody, nobody represents, you know, a new life breaking away from the conditions of your parents and, you know, all the social, religious things that you have shoved down your throat before you know any better. And that, in the essence, for me, was what the 60s was about. And every generation of kids feels that way at a certain point. And uh, depending on how, you know, it's everything's about how you were raised. And, uh, you know, there's so many conditions that send you off in life. But, but a lot of people really want to have a, 
life that has enough in it materially, but not too much. And when you're young, you don't have the same perceptions about time as you do when you're old. So you commit to big ideas. And nothing was a bigger idea than what we did in the 60s, you know, what the dead represented, what the sons tried to represent, you know. And that's compelling because when you look around, there's all kinds of amazing stuff, but there's nothing like that. And so I've always figured that it was some of the most intelligent young people, basically, when they look at what their options are, they really want to be part of a community. We're communal creatures. It's that that's always was the great thing. I'd spent a lot of time at the Oregon Country Fair. And uh, boy, there's just this thing about community that is everything. And we played so many shows with the dead. And even when I didn't think they were very good, when you went out in that audience, it was just such an amazing, nice experience and a connected experience. Everybody's so happy to see each other. You know, everybody coming from everywhere, you know. And it's just like it, this continuum of a good life, you know. And, and, and most of the people I ever met there in the out there in the audience where they were all techies they're all incredibly competent people really you know incredible high-end lives but they just eventually found permission to draw a line in the grateful dead and in that culture you know and there is no place else to look for that relief other than uh if you really understand something, then you can think magically about it too, because it's based in facts and reality. But the magic is the future that you're creating by thinking about it. And that's kind of how we were raised in a lot of ways is that, you know, the thoughts you think are the future you're making. And we just wanted to shift that whole paradigm to really just be thinking some nice thoughts about more than ourselves and you know it's just made so much sense and i think kids are i think every generation is just that way you know so bless them you know if they go out and i love talking to david about like dead and company because he has such a nice relationship with them you know and so i mean that says says quite a bit because you know i think the world of david and i just love what he's done with his life and how much better he's gotten musically is actually good and writes incredible tunes. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I really don't know what to say more than we're communal creatures and it's good to be part of the community and it's good not to be sold a bunch of crap. So. Well, absolutely. And, and just to give a quick shout out to David Gans, who, uh, Terry just mentioned, uh, I'm going to do the same thing. Yeah, you know, thank you, David, for, for teaming us up with Terry today. And uh, we're, we're huge fans of yours, David. Absolutely. Cannot thank you enough. Uh, David was a guest on our show a while back and uh, couldn't have been more gracious in terms of the stories he shared with us. And uh, uh, in an effort to help us bring our show along, Terry, he made the connection to you. And we couldn't be happier about it. So we really do thank David again. And um, just it's it's just so great to be able to you know have somebody such as yourself who has that connection back to this period of time that so many of us that you know didn't come of age until the you know the early 1980s or the late 1980s depending on which one of us you're talking to uh it, it it's it's you know that whole period of time is uh it, it's 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 like this uh you know mystery to us you know we, we hear it we see it we feel like we can sense it and touch it a little bit in the music that comes out of it 
Um, but, you know, to be able to actually hear people who were there and who were part of it and, you know, contributing to the scene and all of that is, I, I think it's just inspiring for any of us who have any interest at all in that area. Yeah, well, you know, the thing that's great is you get to learn from the mistakes and you get to go forward. And uh, it's interesting because, like I've always used the phrase, you had to be there. But one of the things I've realized about the counterculture is it lives in the moment and it always has the shape and the form of modern uh, life in the moment. But with marijuana, you had to be there. If you weren't there, you, there's no chance that you're going to get there. And unless somebody actually like digs deep and gives you something, some genetic little package, that's, that's it. That's it. And so that's what makes it so, so interesting because for people like me that have this, you know, genetic trove of stuff and also a responsibility to maybe humankind is too big a word, but I have a responsibility to my peers and the people that like to get conscious to not monetize it to the point where it's unavailable. And that creates the amazing conundrum that most people, if they get their hands on it, they'll go, okay, you don't have it. I'm going to make a ton of money. So there is this thing of just rioting this thing out and try to, I'm making the most amazing connections at this point in my life. Everybody I'm talking to is like a PhD in some amazing, you know, biology, molecular biology. And my stuff basically is unique enough where I think I hold a lot of keys to the genome because, you know, they've, uh, they've sequenced like hemp but they really don't have a clue what all the sequences of the magical stuff is. And so people like me, and, I, and I'm hoping there's many more people like me just haven't seen a lot, but, you know, figure they're wise and patient and the time isn't yet for them to come out, you know? But those are the, you know, we're all the people that are going to hold the codes to be able to bring back the really ancient stuff, you know? And, there's all kinds of stuff that's on their horizons, but it's, you know, 10 or a hundred million dollars away and 10 years away. So, but you know, it's that it's working for those things and understanding the science well enough that probably distinguishes me from a lot of my peers. They're also great growers and stuff, but you know, like, I mean, from almost the minute I got into this, I was thinking about, you know, agar and fisher culture and, at a molecular level. So it's, it's an ever changing, expanding thing that goes faster and faster. So, uh, you know, having known a lot of the geneticists that are in the California market and you know, the guys are holding on to some of the most amazing cuts and doing a lot of the breeding to, to breed new cuts. Um, you know, I've been really, really concerned with the California market, especially in the legal side, based on you know the taxation that's been hitting. Uh, are you happy to see what, what Gavin Newsom just did as far as you know, relaxing the cultivation tax for the next three years? Is that going to make an impact on the, the success of your business? I think it'll make uh, I think it'll make an impression. I don't think it'll make that much impression unless they really, really get rid of all those onerous, you know, draconian taxes because it's really a piece of shit, terrible thing. That's and you know, it's. Uh, the one thing that I've always known about this, because, you know, whether it was smuggling stuff or bringing stuff from Hawaii, I never have tried to monetize my genetics because I've, uh, for decades, I've been aware of the fact that as soon as somebody gets it, it's lost. 
So I've always held that really close to my vest. And because I could deal with the very high end things at the highest prices and and had a whole network for that, basically, I didn't need to. But now people come to me and they, they go, well, why haven't we seen your stuff before? And I just say, think about it. I never tried to make money off of it. There's no way that you would have ever, ever have seen it. And uh, I have the patience of Job. That's what I tell everybody. You know? So you've been guarding your genetics then for 50 years and you've just been doing minor breeding internally where the only people that actually get to sample what you've been producing are just close friends and family. And other than that, you know, you're only releasing some of these cuts now. That's right. It hasn't been the right time since now. That is the patience of Job for sure. I mean, I know a lot of guys have held on to some cuts for a long time, but ultimately someone always gets their hands on them. So I don't know how you've uh, how you've kept a garden that long without anyone ever saying like, oh, come on, let, let me <laughs> let me get one clone of that. Uh, that's pretty amazing. Well, it's not like that. My very great varieties are the only varieties that I've ever had. You know, and a lot of those varieties, that's the, exactly the thing that happened. But I've always been very clear. I have what I consider to be progenitor varieties that are. My uh, genetics company is called Unobtainium LLC. And in that, I have those really ancient genetics that will never be sold and they'll never go out. So if you want to engage me in the business, I, there's two things I'll do for you. I'll create, I, I think I could probably create, you know, a thousand different new varieties with the genetics I have and just trying to find the right partner to do that with. And uh, the other thing is, yeah, I have so many secondary levels of genetics. Like one of the things about marijuana is there's a great paper by Rob, Robert Clark, and it's called The Botany and Ecology of Cannabis. It's his doctoral thesis on uh, cannabis. And in it, he explains where the psychoactive ingredients in marijuana are. So, you know, when I read that, it really changed my way of looking at marijuana. And if you take the whole trichome with the little round ball and then the stem, and then it's resting on a base of cells, that base of cells is where all the active stuff is. The terpenes and everything is and the rest of the stuff. But the, uh, the molecules that really make marijuana amazing are in those base cells. And they come from two, which is like the most rudimentary hemp, to 24, which is stuff that probably doesn't exist anymore. So I'm thinking that maybe my best marijuana is has 20 or 22 cells down in those base, you know, space cells. And uh, so as soon as you understand that, and then you start looking at it, not just from the smoking place, but there's just so many morphological things that point things out to you, the, the quality of the resin, you know, like lots of things are greasy and they spread out all over your hands. And then there's other things that when the trichomes get in your hand, they feel like sand. And so the ones that feel like sand are definitely far superior to the other ones. And, and then in the scheme of varieties and stuff, like back in the... Early 70s, a bunch of Pakistani hash was brought in, and there was seeds. 
And the people in Humboldt started crossing a lot of their varieties with this Pakistani hash. And so now when you smoke a lot of those varieties in Humboldt, they all have a common taste that's way down in the bottom. And it's really not that beautiful, refined Mazari thing. It's, it's you know, it's more like that grinding hash plant thing. And, uh, and it's just basically because it made a lot of weight. Everybody wanted to grow it. And because marijuana was so legal, everybody could sell their marijuana. And eventually it just got to the point where like all the really good genetics were just kind of bred out of it. And there wasn't, wasn't anybody really keeping the, gen the genetics. So now they have the conundrum that where, you know, it's hard to find anything that you really want to smoke. So that's probably the worst thing that's happened to California. And uh, I'm a really firm believer that the plant itself is a conscious entity. And I've always told people, if the plant had its way, every mom and pop would be growing it. Everybody would be motivated growing the best. The evolution of that plant would just rocket forward because there'd be hundreds of thousands of people working on this big collective genetic thing, you know, and it would be in the side of a community. It would be inside of something safe that made sense, you know, and we'd really be rocking all that conservative crap to death, you know, like, you know, just smoke this and stop thinking that crap, you know, like, let's get high, you know. <laughs> wow. That's fantastic. Terry, my follow-up for you is this. How do people like you, you know, what, what those of us would call the old guard in, uh, in the cannabis world, how do we bring your knowledge and understanding and overall feeling and, and looking at the cannabis to this new modern adult use market where a lot of it seems to be all about profits and, you know, the exact kind of things that you're telling us, you know, you were looking to avoid for so long, you know, and, and, and this is how cannabis is now coming to the public. What are your feelings about that? It's, you know, one of the great things about the California market is it's just going down the shitter. And unfortunately, everybody's losing their money and stuff like that. But for somebody like me, you know what? I've been waiting for this moment to roll out my genetics. <laughs> right. Exactly right. <laughs> and so, you know, it's kind of like this perfect time. And, and, you know, part of my business plan is to really just make sure, you know, I mean, you have no idea how much this means for me to talk to you guys, because this is the essence of what I want to do. I want to talk to like-minded people that love to get high, not fucked up, and really want, and are, you know, creative people with something that they do, and uh, that they pass on from generation and raise cool kids, and I mean, that's that's it, and so... You know, we're looking for all the opportunities now to place these things. And again, I've always been pretty much free. Everything I've done in the suns, I've pretty much been lucky enough to just be able to. I'd like to think that I've been able to think through my opportunities and pick the ones that were pretty benign and uh, leave the really sacred ones to uh, the world of nonprofit us. You know, and so that's still the plan. And now that I'm at such an amazing level of talking to geneticists and right now we're involved with uh, doing the traditional uh, method of 
plant preserving, you know, dry and pressing plants, doing the chemical analysis, getting them on agar to where all of my marijuana is going to be documented like, like Darwin did or like, you know, museums do. And I'm just bypassing the whole marijuana business and I'm going to the deepest traditional practice because it just makes sense because it's, 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 a, it's documenting the plants and, and keeping them for posterity and trying to, so in all that effort, it really sets up a little different direction that the, just the component parts of it are more science minded, more, you know, it, it, it's just a bigger idea, I think. Yeah, and you know, and then you die. So who knows? And I know enough Silicon Valley people that says, "Well, it's just a matter before the shit gets stolen." You know, that's just how it works. And and if it does, you know, I've been doing this for so long and trying to keep the stuff available because I felt like it was a responsibility. When somebody tells me I know somebody's got great great weed, it's got to be better than yours. I said, "God, that's so great." If you could get me just a little, because if I could smoke that really incredible weed, then I wouldn't be tripping so hard on my weed. You know, I'd just play music. I'd just grow my stash. I'd cut cuttings loose to everybody. It would be great. Okay, but the light has finally shown on my pretty good effort, you know. Hmm. But nobody's done that yet. Interesting. And it's been 50 years. Terry, the truth is we could talk to you all day and, you know, given the opportunity and, and, and quite frankly, if we couldn't sit down and, you know, be able to smoke with you too, it would be all the much the better and take turns pulling the tunes out. But uh, uh, this is great. So, so here is my question for you along those lines. And this is something that I'm always asking because I'm always looking for something new. You get home after a hard day, you sit down to relax, you smoke your favorite Hagalicious product. What music do you put on? Boy, you know what? We don't have my wife's a musician too, and she's an excellent singer and a teacher. And we do not have a sound system. Well, we don't put music on. We, for the most part, we don't put music we on. Just you play know, it and sing it. yeah, we, we live in we live in such. A, I, I mean, if I was going to put on music, you know, I'd be putting on really music with really deep, complex harmonics. You know, I'd put on some Mozart or. You know, stuff that really is just got like all those roots. And it's not like I don't like to listen to things because. Sure. You know, I, and I've learned a lot. You know, uh, I guess this would be a good insight into my my musical hubris is we were driving back home the other day and all of a sudden Howling Wolf come on, came on doing Spoonful. And when I was a kid, I would listen to that stuff and I go, God, they can't even play. The guy can't sing. And I was listening to it going, this is perfect. This is pure. This is an unbelievable moment in time. I mean, it is so pure. My idol Hubert Sumlin playing guitar, you know, a voice like you've never heard lyrics that are so just perfect for the time. It's like, but I was just too dumb and too self-absorbed to really be able to hear it. So it's almost like only later in my life can I even really engage in some of the gifts that you have that I wish that I wasn't so wrapped up in me that I had earlier. <laughs> okay. But, you know, that's a learning curve. So per perhaps, perhaps you can answer the age-old question. Can you tell the difference between spoonful and smokestack lightning when you hear it? Oh, yeah, sure. 
Sure. I mean, the roots are the roots, you know? I mean, and there's, you know, when you play a lot of stuff and play a lot of rock, you know, there's like, there's only a, you know, a really handful of really driving things that, you know, like I was lucky enough to be able to back up Chuck Berry a few times and talk to Chuck Berry, you know, pretty intimately. And, uh, you know, you just realized, like, I'm sitting there talking to him and, uh, and I'm going, my God, almost every amazing, like, rocking feeling that I love to feel being a kid of the 50s and the early 60s, this is the guy that did it. And then he looks over at me because we're in the back room and he says, would you play Misty for me? And I go, sure. So I play Misty for him, play nice chord solo and stuff like that. And he looked at me and went, Oh, I always wanted to be a jazz guitar player, but I realized I wasn't good enough. And, you know, it was like this light bulb going on. It's like we all have this thing that is just so filled with self-doubt and it's just it's almost so blinding we can't see outside of it, you know. And here I'm talking to the guy that I've listened to forever and ever and ever, and he's just smelling the beans. I'm like, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm sorry. You know? <laughs> wow. And coming from Chuck Berry, because Chuck can really get pretty screwed up. I mean, that was pretty great. Yeah. That's just amazing. Just amazing. Wow. Well, these are just great stories, and and um, this is just fantastic. One thing I do want to ask you, if people want to get in touch with you, Terry, if they want to find out about Hagalicious, if they want to ask questions about seeds or genetics, what's the best way for folks to reach out to you? Well, my email is terry at terryhaggerty.com, and uh, I try to answer everything, and then until it gets to the point where it's too much, you know, I, I do have somebody I'm working with who is uh, an amazing person in the business who helps run one of the top five biggest companies in California, but our, you know, our group only has to do with genetics and nothing to do with those big groups, but you know, we're working towards me having a few people to help me sort through all this stuff. And uh, I try to answer everything. So send it to Terry at terryhaggerty.com and I'll get back to you sooner or later. Well, that's just wonderful, Terry. And hopefully uh, somewhere down the road, we'll be lucky enough to get you to come back on the show again and maybe tell some of the stories we didn't get to this time. Well, Larry, if you wanted to give me an address off the air, we can take care of that really quick. <laughs> you got it, sir. That is just wonderful. That's what I always like to hear from my favorite musicians in the world. It's, it's a it's 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 a prerequisite, almost. You know? <laughs> I understand. I understand. Well, uh, Terry Haggerty, Sons of Champlin, uh, and uh, rock legend, uh, cannabis legend. Thank you so much for joining us on the uh, Deadhead Cannabis Show today. It's really been a treat for us, and. Uh, just couldn't be happier. Oh God, I'm pleased. So thanks for Rob for sitting in your car and, <laughs> and doing it really great questions. And thanks Dan for, uh, actually making it possible. Great. Our pleasure. And, uh, thank you to everyone. We're going to leave you right now with a, a, a final clip from the sons of Champlin featuring our good friend and guest, uh, Terry Haggerty. Be good, be safe, enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you everyone.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon and I'm Saba and we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while we break it all down.